Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Gerald Horn is a historian who holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore's Chair of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's the author of many books, including The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean. Thanks for joining us, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. The world has heard the names of George Floyd, Freddie Gray, Oscar Grant, Michael Brown, and many, many others brutally murdered by police officers steeped in a culture of racism and demonization of the poor. As brutal as capitalism is for most working people around the world, compared to other advanced economies, at least after World War II, in the U.S., capitalism seems even more savage. Even in its response to the pandemic, many advanced capitalist countries have done much better than the United States. Why, why is that, Gerald? And let's start with your reflections on the current situation in the streets and, and then talk about the roots of a culture that, to a large part, accepts the modern-day lynching of black men. Well, the current situation in the streets is rather historic. In the United States, we haven't seen such massive protests since the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. in April 1968. What's even more remarkable are the attacks on state power. Not only the confrontation in the White House within the last few days that led the man known as Bunker Boy, that is to say the 45th U.S. president, scurrying with his family, escorted by Secret Service agents, into the bowels of the White House into a so-called safe space where he could hide in case the protesters breached the security of the White House. But also the protesters in Columbus, Ohio, at the State House breached security there and burnt down the police precinct in Minneapolis, which was the precinct nearby where George Floyd was killed. So these attacks on state power are quite significant. Also significant is the outbursts of protests globally, not only in Toronto and Auckland, New Zealand and Sydney, Australia and London, England and Berlin, Germany, but also the fact that a high level representative of the African Union in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, uh, called in the U.S. representative for urgent consultations concerning what's going on with regard to people of African descent in this country. So this is a very profound turn of events. And I must say personally that in the last 24 to 48 to 72 hours, I've been besieged by media requests from Iran and Turkey in particular, believe it or not. And uh, I think that the Iranians will take up my suggestion that they press this case of George Floyd and a persecution of black people for the United Nations Human Rights Commission. Now, with regard to the historical roots, one of the more disappointing aspects in terms of following the commentary is that few of the commentators who are being asked to make points about these events make reference to slavery, number one, because that's the key to unlock this question as to why it's so repetitively uh, black people, and particularly black men. 
That is to say that there has been slavery as regard to black people in North America longer than there's been non-slavery. And that during slavery, a certain culture was built up that tended to treat black lives as being cheap or worthless. But more than that, because slaves had a tendency to rebel, the culture that was constructed here in North America, and of course we have over 40 million black people in North America, I'm not even sure people either A, know that, or B, know how we got here. But the culture that was built up was to see these black people as always on the verge of rebelling and to treat them as criminal suspects in waiting. And that led to, of course, the seeds of the first police departments, which were embedded in slave patrols, whose primary mission was to capture those Negroes who were lucky enough to escape the plantation. That's point number one. And then point number two, which uh, I'm happy to say is a point that's at least entering the black mainstream, although not the U.S. mainstream, not even the left mainstream, and I'll get to that in a second. And that point is that when the settlers here in North America revolted against British rule in 1776, uh, a major impetus for that revolt was what was going on in London in terms of Somerset's case in 1772, where England decided to abolish slavery in English England itself, there was a fear that that decision would leapfrog the Atlantic, jeopardizing the fortunes of a murderous row of so-called founding fathers, including George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Patrick Henry, the lawyer for slave owners, President Number 2, John Adams. And so rather than run that risk, they revolted. And of course, in my books, I've drawn an analogy between 1776 and what happened in 1965 in southern Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, where Ian Smith and his racist cronies rebelled against London because they thought London was moving towards African-majority rule. And in fact, he said that he was walking in the footsteps of 1776. Now, I say it's entered the black mainstream because that thesis was reflected in the Pulitzer Prize-winning writing of Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times, uh, where she said as much, and I'm, and I'm happy to say, not in her piece, but... Uh, and other media has quoted me directly on this point. And this, of course, led to a firestorm. I mean, it was very interesting. Even though she won the Pulitzer Prize, there was a united front in the Euro-American community, ranging from so-called Marxists on the left to conservatives like George Will of the Washington Post on the right, upbraiding, excoriating, denouncing uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones. And But I'm happy to say that in the black community, it's basically been a thesis that seems like common sense. And uh, I think that ultimately that particular thesis will prevail because I don't think you can begin to understand this sort of pornographic violence that we're seeing so repetitively with people being killed and then the images being downloaded millions of times not only with regard to George Floyd, but uh, Eric Garner and, and too many others that I won't mention. The only way to understand that is to understand this very peculiar uh, presence of black people in the United States. Because when I, when I was living in Zimbabwe and writing that book on Zimbabwe, uh, the, the racists in Zimbabwe, they were always chiding the United States and, 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 and saying, why do you all have to lynch people? 
I mean, because, you know, these lynchings, they were like festivals. Uh, There would be thousands of Euro-Americans present. Um, There would be photographs taken of the victim as they were being immolated and burned to a crisp. And the, the, the photographs and the postcards are still being circulated. You can find them in museums. And in fact, in this book I have coming out rather shortly on the 16th century, uh, quoting other sources, uh, I should admit, uh, I suggest that lynching in part was a religious sacrament because this whole notion of racism and white supremacy as practiced in the Anglosphere basically emerges from this very deep religious conflict between Protestant England and Catholic Spain, with London being able to soar past Catholic Spain, which after all, they sponsored Columbus, they had the first mover's advantage. But the, quote, defect, unquote, of Catholic Spain was that it had a religious test for settlers. (laughs) You had to be a Catholic. That's one of the reasons why you had Negro conquistadors, for example. That's one of the reasons why uh, in Cuba, uh, the Spanish were heavily dependent upon free Negroes uh, from the inception, from the early 1500s, which helps to explain part of the differences between how black people are treated in Cuba to this very day and how they're treated on the mainland of North America. But then London moved from religion or a religious test for settlers to a pan-European project. Uh, you know, you could be an Irish Catholic, you could be a Scottish Catholic, you could be Jewish, even though London had expelled the Jewish population in 1291, two centuries before Spain did in 1492. But they were an underdog, and so they had to adapt, and they came up with this concept of whiteness. And Spain was enslaving not only Indios and Africans, but also Filipinos. There were tens of thousands of, recall that you know, Spain had seized what we call the Philippines, named after King Felipe or King Philip in the 1500s. And so for uh, decades, they were bringing Filipinos to Mexico uh, to be enslaved. And of course, the other power of that time, the Ottoman Turks, they were enslaving Africans, Europeans, whomever. You know, they, they had a sort of laissez-faire uh, taking on all comers when it comes to enslavement. Whereas the English, as the Anglosphere, that tended to uh, focus quite tightly on Africans, which was the uh, counterpoise, if you like, to uh, whiteness, And then not only enslaving Africans, but then uh, drawing, you know, drawing up these ridiculous rules like the one drop rule. I mean, you could look like Madonna, but if you had any African ancestry, you were a slave, which, of course, broadened the base for slavery. And then trying to expel the free Negro population to Liberia and Sierra Leone. So you have to understand that history in order to understand George Floyd. In your book, you mentioned, I think you used the term, the creation of whiteness as a toxic racial identity and creating a kind of new aristocracy. Why why does that continue in the culture to such an extent? Well, (laughs) one reason I think is that whiteness, as the social scientists tend to say, it's become somewhat invisible, meaning that people sort of take it for granted and it's sort of normative. I mean, I think that's one of the the reasons which which really gets my dander up, as they say, which is that you have many of these Euro-Americans, they're always talking about black people being enmeshed in identity politics. (laughs) You know, if you you organize Black Lives Matter to try to keep the state from murdering you in the street like a dog. And yet, a lot of these other identities are really a reaction to this creation of whiteness, uh, you know, where you had this this united front 
of those who were warring on the shores of Europe, uh, English Protestants versus Irish Catholics, uh, uh, Irish Ulsterman Protestants versus Irish Catholics, uh, Jewish versus Christian, German versus French, Russian versus Pole, Northern Italian versus Southern Italian, Serb versus Karat. Then magically, as they cross the Atlantic, they all become white. You know, it's a, it's a sort of rebranding exercise that Madison Avenue would blush at. And yet it's become sort of normalized and people sort of passively accept this identity without any sort of interrogation. Although I, I should say in all fairness that there's been a fair amount of writing and research um, to which I am indebted uh, concerning this concept of whiteness. But I don't think that once again, a lot of the academic writing has even penetrated to the left movement, even though many of the academic writers on the subject come out of the left movement. And I, I think at some point in the future, a historian perhaps cynically, perhaps not, uh, might conclude that this identity was accepted in such a normative fashion because most, so many people benefited from it. <laughs> I mean, after all, I mean, it was that sort of a whiteness identity politics that led to the seizing of a continent, liquidation of Native Americans, uh, even the sainted Lincoln. He, in the middle of the Civil War, he executed dozens of Native Americans and, of course, continued seizing their land, creating these land-grant universities that still exist in the United States, uh, which would only educate people of European descent. And then in terms of the history, uh, as you know, black people generally were not allowed to go into archives until maybe a few decades ago. And so we were not able to get to the records to try to reconstruct this history. And I guess our Euro-American, quote, friends, unquote, uh, they were too busy basking in the glow of whiteness to take on that sort of research. So it's only been quite recently that this research has taken on. Although, once again, I should say in all fairness that W.E.B. Du Bois, the uh, great black intellectual, um, maybe uh, 120-odd years ago uh, began writing about whiteness. And, and, and a lot of the the... Uh, the the writing and the essence of whiteness studies really comes out of the writings of Du Bois. There have been times, especially in the building of trade unions in the thirties, when there was a real class solidarity though. Some of the leading organizers of the industrial unions in the thirties were black. Yes. Uh, I know in the, in the auto industry, it, it was black trade unionists together with white trade unionists that, that fought against machine guns together. Um, that, that is there is, do you see how that will develop now? Because, the, you know, this idea that the role of whites is just to be the ally of blacks in struggle. I understand the, uh, the instinct of black activists and, and the experience of how liberal whites have taken over so many organizations in the sixties. And there, and there does need to be organizations that are black led by blacks. On the other hand, there's got to be a broad front developing against this growing fascism uh, and the uh, we're sinking into deep depression. There's for the first time whole sections of the white working class that never imagined they would be in poverty are going to be in poverty here. This, there's no way this is going to go well for large sections, including large sections of people that voted for Trump in the working class. What do you see the prospects for that? 
Well, I, th- I think you're correct on on all levels. I mean, with regard to the 1930s, for example, which was the zenith of trade union organizing in the United States, you had numerous examples of uh, interracial, multiracial organizing. If you look at the history of the National Maritime Union, for example, I wrote a book about a black Jamaican who was a founder of the NMU, Ferdinand Smith, who, of course, eventually was deported back to the island where he became involved in independence struggles there, culminating in Jamaican independence in 1962. And then there's Harry Bridges, a well-born in Melbourne, Australia, who migrates as a youth to the San Francisco Bay Area, leads the San Francisco General Strike of 1934, which leads to the formation of the International uh, Longshore and Warehouseman's Union, which is still in existence, not only organized the docks from uh, Seattle to San Diego, but also uh, this union was pivotal in organizing uh, uh, Hawaii, uh, which... uh, until, say, the 1930s, was sort of a citadel of white supremacy. It was uh, an apartheid land. But once uh, Harry Bridges and the ILWU arrived there, uh, it became and has become, uh, under U.S. colonial administration, I might add, to this very day, the most progressive state within the United States of America. And that model is not unique to the 1930s. I mean, you can go back... For example, to the St. Louis General Strike of 1877, of course, the U.S. Civil War, 1861 to 1865, the abolitionist movement before that. Now, certainly we're faced with a very unique and peculiar moment. I mean, it's amazing the speed and velocity with which the bottom has fallen out of the United States of America. It basically has happened in a matter of weeks. And I think that it's left a number of people sort of dazed and stunned it's, it's almost like getting a sucker punch. Uh, you know, you're, you're walking into the subway and somebody suddenly hits you in the head. You don't know what happened to you. But I do sense a, a kind of recovery. And the recovery, I think, is manifested as we speak with regard to these protests concerning George Floyd, which has become a vehicle to express discontent with all manner of issues, and I would say the same holds true for the demonstrations abroad uh, in solidarity with the demonstrations here in North America, but uh, unfortunately there's a downside, which is that these demonstrations might wind up being a super spreader in terms of the coronavirus. It's very unfortunate you have to organize in the midst of a pandemic, and uh, I'm, I'm reluctant to speculate on what hospitals will be overrun within two weeks. dangerous in another way too because you know as much as one subjectively gets a kick out of seeing so much fire all around the white house um the iconic image of this is buildings burning down including many of whom are actually in neighborhoods that poor black people live i know from from the past uh, i i did a lot of coverage of the toronto g20 uh, where the police there arrested a thousand people and they deliberately left the police car out to be set on fire, probably by a, a, poli- a provoc- provocateur who was a cop or paid by the cops. 
Um, and then in, uh, and the Freddie Gray in Baltimore, I was, you know, I was living in Baltimore for eight years and I was covering all the Freddie Gray events. And it came out very clearly that the police deliberately laid back and let the uh, uh, CVS store be torched. In fact, the union itself accused the chief of police in writing of deliberately holding back so that the uh, place could burn, uh, telling police ahead of time that they needed the protesters to look like the villains before they started cracking heads. Um, I'm sure much of this, uh, the fires that are being set and, and such are part of a kind of spontaneous expression of anger, but they're also very possibly part of this as well, you know, a deliberate attempt to characterize the protests in a way that scare the hell out of a lot of people and justify what Trump wants to do next, bring in the army and put people in jail for 10 years and create a kind of uh, police state or more of a police state because people should understand in poor black communities, uh, it's it's usually like a police state in, in quote unquote normal times. Uh, but that being said, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dangerous moment that Trump can use in, in his own nefarious way. Well, I'm afraid you're right. And fortunately, there's been some reporting on that. Uh, Michelle Goldberg in her column in the New York Times linked to another column that talked about the so-called Boogaloo Boys, this ultra-right movement that supposedly is are using these protests to try to stoke what they call, quote, a race war, unquote. And then there have been all these other reports, very disturbing reports about provocateurs of various sorts. And certainly at his notorious speech, I believe it was June 1, 2020, Mr. Trump, uh, and in some of his first words to those assembled, spoke of himself as being the president of law and order, uh, trying to evoke memories of Richard Nixon, who won on that platform in 1968, uh, running against uh, unrest at Berkeley, unrest in Watts, uh, unrest in Detroit and Newark. And in a sense, uh, Mr. Trump wants to do a replay of that. But I think part of the disturbing aspect of that uh, rather vulgar presentation by Mr. Trump was how he used the military to rout and roust peaceful demonstrators across the street from the White House so that he could have a photo opportunity in front of a boarded up church and hold up a Bible to make a rather crude and blatant appeal to his so-called Christian evangelical followers. But even more disturbing is that the head of the U.S. military had on battle fatigues as he cleared the path for Mr. Trump. And as they kettled demonstrators and had men on horseback and all sorts of sophisticated military tactics. And this is in the light of the fact that routinely in police departments, the Pentagon, the U.S. military, sends grenade launchers, uh, armed personnel carriers to urban police departments. And it makes you wonder, who, who are they trying to police with these warfighting tools? Not to mention the fact that what's been going on in terms of the use of flashbang, uh, tear gas, you, you would think that this is the, the West Bank, uh, sadly enough, and not these urban centers in the United States of America. And then the other point is that I'm afraid to say that Mr. Trump has more latitude in Washington, D.C., which still has a heavily black community 
that is quite upset by the George Floyd killing and that Washington, D.C. might wind up being a guinea pig for the kinds of military interventions that will then be spreading uh, from the East Coast to the West Coast. And that's partly because uh, Trump does not need the permission of a governor in Washington, D.C. to use the military, whereas in other states, in in the states, governors have to ask for military assistance. Now, on the other hand, if he declares an emergency because of apprehension of insurgency or whatever the language is, then he doesn't even need the permission of a governor. There's another twist to this, his use of the word domestic terrorism. And I don't, I'm going to make a point. I haven't heard somewhere else for a while. But remember a few years ago, and this was during Obama's time, during the, the amendment to the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, which they do every year you know, to get their money, they put in a clause that allows for the army to intern people, or essentially hold people without habeas corpus, without any uh, uh, due process. And, and it's if you support the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, or terrorism, I believe, was the language. So if they start calling what's going on in the streets domestic terrorism, they actually have some kind of legal basis to actually start you know, rounding people up. Well, as you know, a precursor for that has already begun, is in motion with this invocation of Antifa, which has become the latest bugaboo for the right wing, uh, the so-called anti-fascist movement, who are comprised of what we are told are anarchists, although there are some questions as to whether or not uh, Mr. Trump can designate a domestic formation like Antifa as a terrorist organization. But given the fact that he has been so energetic, along with the grim reaper Mitch McConnell, in appointing uh, compliant and pliable federal judges, and not to mention Supreme Court judges like Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, it's no telling what mental acrobatics these judges will endure in order to serve up on a silver platter some judicial opinion that Mr. Trump desires. So it's obvious that we're in a very dangerous and perilous moment. And part of the problem is, is that we don't have the kind of organization right now in terms of the militant opposition that the moment calls for, which I totally understand. Because historically, when militant organization has erupted, like the Black Panther Party, they're bludgeoned into submission, the leaders are jailed, the meters are leaders like Fred Hampton in Chicago on December 4th, 1969, are killed in their beds. And therefore, this has led to what we have now, which is a sort of a leaderless resistance, so to speak, because Black Lives Matter is highly decentralized, and it prides itself on that. I think it's made of a virtue of what some might consider to be a necessity. But the problem is it's difficult to uh, route provocateurs without adept organization. It's difficult to plan without adept organization. It's difficult to continue to mobilize and make outreach to our friends overseas and to the press without some sort of organizing framework. So we're going to have to find a way to square that circle. That is to say, we know that once you have any kind of semblance of centralized organization, the authorities jump on it with both feet 
But at the same time, we, we need some sort of organization uh, with all due respect to um, Black Lives Matter. There needs to be, I think. And, and the only place I can see this having the potential of having a force, uh, and I say this with some trepidation because they don't usually play this role, but is the unions. The unions really do have diverse membership. I mean, you take place uh, unions like SEIU, I think is majority black now. Um, the leadership isn't, but the membership is. Um, and if you look across the board, they have money, they have resources, they actually can get in contact with significant sections of the working class. I know the unions are way smaller than they used to be. But if you look at the role the nurses played in the Sanders campaign and communications workers, like two or three unions, I don't think there would have been much of a Sanders campaign without them. So th this fight, I think, within the unions for the unions to start actually acting like, you know, workers' organizations and not just subservient appendages to the Democratic Party, I think is going to be a critical uh, step in what what's comes next. Because I think there really has to be a broad front organization of workers and, and other stratum of the society. Yes, the elections are coming, maybe. Uh, you know, we, who knows? I think it's a real question whether the elections will be postponed either because of the pandemic or because of what's going on in the streets or because he starts a provocation with Iran or all of the above. But one way or the other, there's got to be a national progressive organization outside the Democratic Party because that's the only thing that's actually national right now that has any kind of uh, strength. Well, I agree, but... Sadly and unfortunately, perhaps as a coda to our conversation, is that one of the places defaced and attacked in Washington, D.C. was the headquarters the AFL CIO. <laughs> so there you have it. And, you know, I, 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 I would not have participated in that, that action. I would not have recommended that action. But I understand that action. Uh, because despite their potential, and potential by definition means you haven't done it yet, despite their potential, the FLCIO historically, I mean, it, it comes out of these anti-communist purges that led to the men I just mentioned a moment or two ago, the, the ouster or the harassment, Ferdinand Smith and Harry Bridges. In my book on Southern Africa, I talk about this moment in Portugal in 1974 in the midst of the the Portuguese Revolution, which led to the ultimately the liberation of Angola, Namibia, Mozambique, and South Africa, that the CIA is about to throw in the towel after as the revolution is in motion. But it's the AFL-CIO leadership that shows up and says, "Man up! <laughs> this battle is not over." <laughs> you know, and so I mean, th this whole AFL-CIO policy of going around the world beating up on progressive unions so that. You can be runaway shops and jobs can be exported to these uh, low-wage havens. It's almost a textbook definition of lunacy and backwardness. So I agree with you in principle, but it's going to be a steep mountain to climb. Well, it's, it's, well everything is. There ain't no mountain that's not going to be a steep mountain to climb here. But we got to pick our mountains. I mean, this the, the unions, to a large extent, became just part of the state apparatus a long time ago. Samuel Gompers, I was seeing, was actually part of the American delegation to negotiate the Versailles Treaty. And this goes back quite a ways, the uh, merging of the unions 
into the state. But there is a struggle going on in the unions. There's a class struggle and there are progressive workers in many of the unions that are very, you know, are in struggle against the leadership. And then there is some leadership of some of the unions, which isn't bad. It's fairly progressive. And I think, you know, I know on the analysis, I'm going to start really trying to dig into, you know, where things are at in this struggle in the unions. Good. And of course, the campaign to elect progressives to Congress and at various other levels, uh, has had some success and has some motion and more may come out of this current moment. Well, let's hope so, because I think that if we are to be rescued, uh, unions are going to have to play a leading role. Yeah. Uh, You know, I was in Baltimore, I'm not in Baltimore now, but I lived there for about eight years. And I don't know if this is true in other cities, but in Baltimore, there's quite a prevailing uh, force there amongst black activists uh, that they should, that white should just stay the hell out. You know, you can be white should be like a subordinate ally, but the idea of building a broad front that includes white workers and so on is kind of just off the table. Uh, does that exist in other cities with much strength? Because if that's the case, uh, then you know, we're not going to get very far in, ter- in terms of building a real united front. Well, I think it is the case, but of course it comes out of a bitter history. I mean, we were just talking a moment ago about a lot of these people define us white. You know, they don't even want to recognize that this is a historical construction. They act like it's some sort of normalized identity passed down from the heavens, for example, which then helps to obscure, uh, you know, their quote, white chauvinism. By, and, you know, by the way, of course, this, isn't it ironic that the man accused in the George Floyd murder is named Chauvin. And of course, that word has been bequeathed to us from a f- alleged French maniacally patriotic officer in the late 18th century. And of course, now we have a show enough white chauvinist uh, who is going to be in the dock. And I think there's uh, some irony there indeed. But I, I think that once again, um, you know, I would be remiss if I did not mention my own union, union experience working with the union that was called Martin Luther King's a favorite union. That was his term. Uh, the hospital workers in New York City uh, who are not only the so-called frontline workers and are really taking it on the chin in the epicenter of the pandemic uh, in uh, Manhattan and Brooklyn and the Bronx in particular, but also historically has been a left-leaning force uh you can even, I'm afraid to say, see their influence in some of the rhetoric that's coming out of Governor Cuomo of late, where he referred to racism as being chronic, endemic, and institutional after Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor for the 45th U.S. president, said on national television that they're just a few bad apples, you know, the old bad apples line, which then... Governor Cuomo, and I would say probably under prodding by the Hospital Workers Union, uh, perhaps if Governor Cuomo stops slashing Medicaid, we'll really have something to pat him on the back about. So just to end up, uh, you know, there's some debate on the left uh, and and some interesting, you know, fairly prominent progressives saying that this coming November election, that the Democrats and especially Biden, you know, he's not any better than Trump and that people should kind of just forget about it, almost sit it out and focus on movement building and such. Uh, What do you make of that? 
Well, I understand the sentiment, but I don't necessarily agree with it. Um, I was telling a, a reporter just this afternoon that uh, I'm sympathetic to the idea that one can either one could vote for a talking horse rather than vote f- rather than see Mr. Trump uh, have another four years in the White House. And of course, the tragedy is, and, and this is what uh, I think many people in the black community find upsetting, is that. Sometimes there seems to be this assumption that Mr. Trump is just this individual wreaking havoc, whereas if you look at his his poll numbers, they rarely dip below 40, and that as of today, you cannot say definitively that he will be defeated. And I don't think it's simply because Biden is a historically weak candidate. I think that historically, to come full circle, one of the weaknesses of the left is that it has made a misestimate of the correlation of forces in this settler state that then had a counter-revolution to come into being. And there was a kind of process whereby those who could uh, don the cloak of whiteness could then seize Native American land. And with a little luck and a, a lot of pluck, they could then have that land stock with the labor of enslaved Africans and that there is, when you talk about making America great again, there's this lingering sentiment that rarely gets articulated that that similar process could recur, not only looting, leading to the looting and plundering and pillaging of people of color in this country, but also abroad, which of course then would lead us into the present confrontation of China, which has overtones not only of geopolitical supremacy, but given the United States' trouble, stark cross relationship with people of African descent, need I mention Vietnam, uh, Korea, the dropping of an atomic bomb on Japan, uh, that uh, this is a very combustible situation that we're facing in the United States. And some of our friends on the left, you know, uh, that whole historical landscape I just painted. It hasn't seemed to have dawned on them. And so it leads them to these very naive conclusions. And so I think we need to take this election very seriously. And we should do everything in our power to make sure that Donald Trump is not reelected. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Thanks very much for joining us, Joe. Good luck to you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. Mm-hmm.